Hey now, this is Doc. Hope you learned something tonight. Body talk. Our nation was born in genocide when it embraced the doctrine that the original American, the Indian, was an inferior race, even before there were large numbers of Negroes on our shore. The scar of racial hatred had already disfigured colonial society. From the 16th century forward, blood flows in battles over racial supremacy. We are perhaps the only nation which tried a matter of national policy to wipe out its indigenous population. Moreover, we elevated that tragic experience into a noble crusade. Indeed, even today we have not permitted ourselves to reject or feel remorse for this shameful episode. Our literature, our films, our drama, our folklore all exhaled it. Our children are still taught to respect the violence which reduced our red-skinned people of an earlier culture into a few fragmented groups herded into improvised reservations. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Let's talk about genocide. When you Google the word genocide, a list comes up of genocides around the world, referencing the Armenian Genocide, the Holocaust, the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia, Bosnian Genocide in the 1990s, and the Rwandan Genocide. But what is not included in that list, nor the primary dialogue in the United States regarding genocide, is the massive genocide of indigenous peoples in North America at the hands of settler society. The United Nations defines genocide as any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, while the United States finally recognized this definition in 1988, a short 40 years after the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Crime of Genocide, also known as UNDRIP, took place. The U.S. genocide of Native peoples is not common knowledge. I learned all about the Holocaust in high school, but we never once talked about settler colonization in the United States as a genocide. And why do you find this problematic? I think that this is something everyone living in the United States needs to know about. We see strong movements of patriotism throughout the U U.S. as if the United States is the best country in the world. I think it is common for Americans to wear their country as a shiny badge of pride, but rather uncommon to see it as a nation built on colonization and genocide. I think our society teaches its children about the Holocaust because that story paints the U.S. as the heroes that saves the day. No one wants to teach students about how their country was born in genocide. Well. That's why we're here today, to unpack one aspect of the genocide that the United States was founded upon and continues to perpetuate. If we go back to the United Nations definition of de genocide, we can see instances of every action of genocide committed by settler society against Native peoples throughout history. But today, we'll be focusing on the last definition of genocide, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. I'm Turtle, here in the studio today with Doc. And Lydia's here on sound, and 
Savannah here with us today. Thank you so much for listening. forcible transfer of children from their culture to another group. Why is this action of genocide so important for the public to understand? Well, this act of genocide was widespread, heavily practiced, and according to the federal government, completely legal until 1978. 1978. That was fairly recent. Yes. Essentially, this act of genocide was legal in the United States until 1978 when Congress decided to recognize this massive removal of Native children from their tribe, culture, and way of life as a crisis worth addressing. This country has a long history of forcibly removing Native children from their culture. Post-Civil War, a strong national movement grew to destroy Native culture and assimilate Native peoples into settler society. U.S. policies were structured to destroy all elements of Native culture, including language, religion, dress, appearance, dance, and way of life. This quote I have here, I think, embodies the genocide legitimized by the United States government. A great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one, and that high sanction of his destruction has been an enormous factor in promoting Indian massacres. In a sense, I agree with this sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian and save the man. That's a quote from General Richard Henry Pratt. So, kill the Indian, save the man is a phrase coined by General Henry Richard Pratt, who founded the Carlisle Indian School in 1879. He founded this boarding school with the goal of saving Native children from their savage and uncivilized lifestyles by forcing Anglo culture and Christianity upon them. This served as the model for the numerous schools that the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or the BIA, that's how we'll be referring to it throughout this podcast. Um, So how the BIA modeled their schools in the following years. In 1891, the federal government issued a compulsory attendance law that enabled federal officers to forcibly take Native American children from their home and reservations. Parents had to authorize their children's attendance at boarding schools, and of course, many Native parents refused to send their children to these off-reservation boarding schools. So Congress authorized the Commissioner of Indian Affairs to withhold rations, clothing, and annuities from those families that refused to send students, sometimes even incarcerating parents into compliance. By 1926, nearly 83% of Native school-aged children were attending boarding schools. These boarding schools highlight how this genocide is manifested. Native children in boarding schools suffered physical, sexual, cultural, and spiritual abuse and neglect, and experienced treatment that in many cases constituted torture for speaking their native languages. Many children never returned home and their fates have yet to be accounted for by the U.S. government. Under the United Nations definition, this definitely constitutes as genocide. Now, let's turn to one of our panelists here today to hear about the history of forcibly removing Native children from their culture and how it's impacted her life and the lives of her loved ones. Um, Back then, my grandparents, just two generations ago, they were forced to go to like missionary schools and everything. 
and they were forced to attend church and cut their hair and stuff. And it's really weird because my boyfriend's grandparents are the same age as my grandparents, so I feel like they would have mentioned it to him at least mm-hmm. a few times. But I feel like it's just been so... I don't know, I feel like they were just so colonized because my grandparents, they still do our cultural and religious beliefs. But on my boyfriend's side of the family, they go to church. And to me, it's the strangest thing because it's like... It's like the missionaries attempted to basically wipe us out and here we are still going to church even in warm springs like on the reservation we have multiple churches it's just kind of like we know what happened and our culture is so far back but we don't acknowledge it to the point that we don't continue it we just still continue those practices as if it's normalized as if it's still part of our culture which it's not at all Mm-hmm. It's like there's just a sense of trauma still and that it's not healing anyone and that it just keeps going because it's not spoken of. And you said that your boyfriend went to boarding school. Oh, yeah, he went to boarding school when he was in high school. But I remember asking my boyfriend what it was like being at a boarding school and he's told me that it was kind of creepy because there's a cemetery nearby. There are some without headstones, which is really sad if you yeah. think about it because it's like... They went there and they never went home. So it's like a piece of them are still there. And then that's when I asked his sister about it. And she said she remembered going there and she'd hear other kids cry, like girls crying because they miss their families and stuff. And it just made me think back to the old type of boarding schools, even though that currently they're supposed to be ran like by indigenous people. It still made me think of the parallels there because they both miss their families. It wasn't like home like it should have been. And she told me about how sometimes she would wake up because she could hear or feel something around there because of kids that committed suicide there or like how I mentioned before about the cemetery being there and students in the past not being able to return home and make their journey back like mm-hmm. they should have. And you also said that your boyfriend didn't know about the history of boarding schools. Yeah. Because I asked him, I was like, why would you want to go to boarding school after everything that happened to our people Mm -hmm. in the past? And then he's like, what are you talking about? And I told him, I was like, it's just weird because you go to church and you went to boarding school and you're fine with it and it doesn't affect you and it doesn't hurt you. Mm -hmm. Like even on the inside, you don't think of your grandparents and what they went through. And then he's like, what are you talking about? And then I had to break it down to him about what happened in the past to our family members about how they'd be taken from their homes and forced to speak a different language and I remember my grandparents telling me about what their parents told them or their uncles or their aunts about how some of them were raped or molested and they would never want to talk about it and that led a lot to suicide and depression and because it's such a close subject nobody really knew the full story and nothing was ever really done about it because nobody would listen to them because they were just dumb Indians, they said. They didn't know anything. They would cut their hair. And in our culture, you're supposed to keep your hair when you cut it because when you pass away, you're supposed to make a pillow out of it that goes with you so you can complete your journey or else you'll be stuck trying to find your hair or whatever else you left behind. So it's really being incomplete too. And they talked about how sometimes some of our language is missing, like fractions here and there, because when they would try to speak their language, they would basically get beat, or they would go without food, or Mm -hmm. basic necessities. 
and the more white they acted, they said, the better life was for them. And then when they returned home, their families would have a hard time accepting them because it's just a cycle of trauma and nobody really knew how to address it, so it just continued. And you think about like how some people were like molested or raped when they were younger, and then doing it, coming back to the reservation and doing it to other children right. or people, and it's just a cycle that continues. Thank you, Savannah. I really appreciate your personalized perspective. I think this story really highlights the vestiges of federal boarding school policy that continue to exist in the 21st century and shows the lasting power of colonial structures rooted in genocide. And you know, another key issue I want to highlight with respect of native boarding schools is that these schools were designed to condemn native peoples to permanent inequality as an inferior working class. I actually have a quote here from Estelle Real, the superintendent of Indian education from 1898 to 1910, which says, no amount of book learning could result in economic independence for Indian people. As we can see from this quote, these schools were structured to strip native peoples of their power and keep them down. Her quote is alluding to the fact that in these schools, they didn't really teach what we would today think of as education. It was a lot of kind of vocational skills, farming, sewing, so that they could enter society assimilated, but working jobs that could never could never allow them to, to make enough money to move up in the world, essentially keeping, trying to keep them inferior. So in my experience, most Americans have heard of these boarding schools, but think of them as archaic in ancient history. Why is this an issue? Well, first of all, these boarding schools continued to exist well into the 20th century. In 1928, the Miriam Report was published as a result of the investigation into the outcome of government policies toward American Indians that was commissioned by the federal government. The report uncovered the suffering present in these boarding schools and found that children at federal boarding schools were malnourished, overworked, harshly punished, and poorly educated. While this report led to some reform in boarding schools, in the 1960s, another congressional report found that these schools still had a major emphasis on discipline and punishment and that the teachers saw their role as one that was meant to civilize Native students rather than educate them. The 1960s, that wasn't very long ago, was it? I'd classify the 1960s as very recent. Mm -hmm. But that's also right around the time that the government took some action to reverse detrimental policies that had historically removed Native children from their families, cultures, and stripped them of their Native identities, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, you're right. There was actually a string of acts in the 1970s that sought to help Native peoples obtain sovereignty and self-determination, which tribes had been fighting for since the first white settlers started imposing on Native land and ways of life. But So there was the Self-Determination and Education Assistance Acts, which was passed in 1975, which promoted self-governance by tribes and allowed them to contract with federal agencies such as the BIA and Indian Health Service to control and operate programs 
and services formerly administered by those agencies. And in 1978, the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, was passed, which sought to address the continuous high rate of Native American youth removed from their homes and communities. Yeah, ICWA. ICWA designed to stop the widespread removals of Native children from their communities. Because in addition to the boarding schools we've been talking about, another prominent and detrimental type of legalized removal was occurring, wasn't it? Yes, you are right about that. Boarding schools sought to destroy Native culture through education, although I think after our discussion we've established that these boarding schools were not educational institutions. But there was also a movement to remove Native children from their communities altogether and place them in non-Native families. The dominant belief at this time was that Native children were better off raised in white homes. So once the success of boarding schools was called into question, the Bureau of Indian Affairs created the Indian Adoption Policy in 1958 to promote adoption of Native children from 16 Western states by white adoptive families in the East. And while officially only 395 Native children from 16 states were adopted, it's estimated that um, between 1961 and 1976, approximately 12,486 Native children were adopted by non-Native families, and these numbers were not included in the first 395 estimate because these were outside the scope of the Indian Adoption Project, but the project really spurred this movement of, of non-Native families adopting Native children. And while the creators of the project claimed that its purpose was to give Native children the opportunity for a better life, Native activists and their allies denounced the project as the most recent in a long line of genocidal policies toward Native communities and cultures. Yes, and if we look at this issue, from an indigenous perspective, we can see this. A 1974 survey from a North Dakota tribe found that all of the children that were removed from that tribe, only 1% for physical abuse. About 99% were taken on the basis of such vague standards as deprivation, neglect, taken because their homes thought to be too poverty-stricken to support their children. Could that be seen as racial and cultural bias on the part of adoption agencies? Absolutely. And I, I think it also speaks to another profound issue with, with adoption policies, um, because any poverty or poor living conditions on reservations that made adoption agencies deem Native parents unfit to care for their children, these were essentially created by settler colonization in their attempts to destroy Native peoples altogether. I have a quote here from South Dakota's Senator James Abrisk, who was influential in getting ICWA passed about this issue. He says, officials would seemingly rather place Indian children in non-Indian settings where their Indian culture, their Indian traditions, and in general, their entire Indian way of life is smothered. The federal government, for its part, has been conspicuous by its lack of action. It has chosen to allow these agencies to strike at the heart of Indian communities by literally stealing Indian children, a course which can only weaken rather than strengthen the Indian child, the family, and the community. So thanks to government officials like Senator, how did you say that, Doc? Abrisk. Senator Abrisk, 
along with the fierce efforts of Native activists to fight assimilation, discrimination, and cultural genocide, ICWA was finally passed into law. And what changes did it implement? Well, some of the changes ICWA sought to implement were defining the exclusive jurisdiction of Native courts to deal with child custody proceedings, um, compelling state courts and tribal courts to cooperate. In the case that the child does not reside within the reservation, the state courts must transfer the custody proceedings to the jurisdiction of the tribe. That one's pretty great. Demanding the testimony of a qualified expert witness that is familiar with Native culture to determine if a child is in danger. This one is super important because before they weren't getting an indigenous perspective on the situations on reservations and so there was nobody to speak for the native peoples so this was pretty important. Also stipulated that any child accepted for foster care or adoption shall be placed with a member of his extended family or a family home or Indian foster home or institution approved and licensed by the child's tribe. Um, so ICWA essentially is really working to enhance family and tribal bonds and is also considering solidarity between um, tribal members paramount for the survival of tribes. So it really it had some great, some great intentions and has done some great work. One of the most significant aspects of ICWA was that it guaranteed tribal courts jurisdiction outside reservation boundaries when dealing with adoption cases, a big step toward tribal sovereignty. The creation of ICWA gave rise to a large and growing group of tribal lawyers and administrators working to deconstruct the structural inequalities created by child welfare systems prior to ICWA. These professionals continue to fight to undo the egregious acts of colonization and assimilation committed by the U.S. government for hundreds of years. I think ICWA is great in that it acknowledges the importance of children for survival of native, native cultures. But I think it's important to note that ICWA only protects federally recognized tribes. Many tribal nations were structurally dismantled due to settler colonization, from violent removal and land grabbing to the termination era in the 50s, where the government found a way to legalize the deconstruction of tribal communities once again. So as a result, tribal communities that the federal government, the colonizer really, refuses to recognize are not guaranteed the same protections as their federally recognized counterparts. And additionally, aside from a few exceptions, the federal government gets to decide who is native and who is not based on blood quantum, a system created by the colonizer society. So while ICWA seeks to support tribal sovereignty, it still is upholding a colonial construct. This is problematic. So, ICWA passed in 1978, and since then there's been a lot of positive change. Native peoples have continued to forge tribal sovereignty and their right to self-determine. But ICWA is also under attack. Yes, it is. In 2018, a federal judge in Texas ruled that ICWA was unconstitutional, saying that it was discriminatory against non-Native families and was giving Native American families preferential treatment with respect to adoption based on race. Well, this was problematic for many reasons, but a foundational problem with this judge's ruling is that it's considering Native Americans to be a racial group, and that's undermining 
the legal status of native tribes as sovereign nations. So here we are, 2018. Native peoples have shown their strength and resilience and their survivance in the face of federal legalized actions of genocide and colonization. But as we see from this Texas judge's ruling, there are still efforts to delegitimize tribal sovereignty and break down the recent legal structures that seek to address Native issues and protect Native interests. So here in the studio, we're nearing the end of our time. But in closing this podcast, we'd like our listeners to really think about the relationship between Indian child removal and colonialism in the U.S and what can be done as far as reparations go with respect to this genocide that occurred with the massive removal of Indian children. And we ask you to reimagine a future where Native children are placed with Native families in order to preserve the culture and we ask you what would that look like? What I'm about to share will not surprise our nation's most prominent Aboriginal leaders or advocates. And today I simply invite you to pay close attention to your own reaction when you learn of the following. Australia has created a multi-billion dollar industry off the back of Aboriginal disadvantage. And if that sounds alarmist, I ask you to pay attention to your reaction when I share this. In just one year, $5.9 billion of our money was spent in the portfolio of Aboriginal Affairs. I say the portfolio of Aboriginal Affairs because it's important to remember that this money was not directed into communities and the people who have the most need. As a taxpayer, I ask you this. Do you have confidence knowing that this multi-billion dollar industry is using money in a way that is misdirected Do you feel like this $5.9 billion industry should be held accountable for not delivering the outcomes that are required? Would you be surprised to learn that very few of the schemes are evaluated properly? Take, for example, the federal government's initiative on Indigenous home ownership. It's designed to increase home ownership amongst Indigenous population. What if I told you that in one year, 75 loans were administered? Could you guess how many people were employed to administer those 75 loans? 75. Incredible, right? So when we ask ourselves the question, how is this model effective? What answers are we left to consider? Would your answer change if you knew that half of those loans that were approved could actually be delivered by a mainstream mortgage lender? So when we think about the numbers, all of a sudden, 75 people employed to administer 75 loans becomes 75 people employed to administer about 36 loans. There are thousands of programs designed in Australia under the purpose and with the intention of addressing some form of Aboriginal disadvantage. Unfortunately, just 100 out of every 1,000 programs are actually evaluated against those stated purposes. If that's the case, how can we be sure that they're working? 
And what can we do as Australians to make sure that the decision makers who are directing this money, and let's face it, paternalistic policies, how can we make them accountable? Why are we so compliant and so okay with maintaining the status quo of a multi-billion dollar industry that continues to benefit on the back of Aboriginal disadvantage? I'm going to suggest that the mistake we make is also one that I've made in my speech so far. We've seen the issue from a very top-down perspective. Some may call this paternalistic. When we do this, what we fail to remember is that we also ignore people's stories. And in failing to acknowledge people's stories, we also fail to acknowledge their needs. My name is Kia Dow, and I'm a passionate advocate for addressing issues that negatively impact Indigenous communities. We do this in our work by looking at the complex business and social challenges that face our communities every day. We work with top business leaders, from ASX-listed companies to NGOs, and we work to partner with Indigenous communities to co-create locally relevant solutions that meet their needs and the challenges that they face every day. Now, I feel like I also need to clarify that I identify as an Australian and as a woman who is also Aboriginal, from the Gidja people of Wadman community in the East Kimberley region of Western Australia. I am also equally proud of my father's heritage from Scotland and England. If you're wondering why I felt it was necessary to clarify that, it's probably got something to do with people saying things like, you don't look like a real Aboriginal person, or you're not black enough to be a real Aboriginal person, and my favourite, or oh, you're one of the good ones, whatever that means. <laughs> you see, those statements are symptoms of a much larger economic issue, not a race issue. And when you reflect on what they contribute to, for starters, they actually focus on our deficit, they focus on the deficit of people and communities. We also see other symptoms emerge. Symptoms such as generations of individuals who fail to recognize how wonderfully incredible they are. Resilient individuals. Notice that I'm using individuals as opposed to labels. I've had the privilege of working with over 500 incredible human beings most who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. These individuals not only want to lead positive social change in their communities and our country, but they want to be part of implementing it. Unfortunately, we do consistently see an epidemic of deeply embedded destructive beliefs. When you think about the average age of participants in our programs, we're talking about 18-year-olds. Now, if you were to take your mind back, to when you were 18 and all the experiences that created and shaped who you are today. I want you to consider just for a moment the life of the 18-year-olds we work with and the path that they've walked. A number of these young people are children and grandchildren of members of the Stolen Generation. And yes, I know there's many people in Australia who want us to get over it. Believe me, no one wants that more than we do. No one wants to be born into a cycle of welfare dependency. No child is born saying, hey, pick me so that I can, you know, have issues my whole life. No. We want to resolve intergenerational trauma. 
but we need to be able to do it as a collective. A number of these young people are also reminders of the potential that we can become. The wonderful thing about this story with these young people is at the end of the program emerged this incredible question. Our question, I believe, is very relevant for us today, one that I want each and every one of you to reflect on. In denying parts of who you are, are you also denying parts of your parents, grandparents and ancestors who paved this very privileged path for you to be in this room today? This is a question that I believe resonates with all of us, not just as human beings, but as a collective group of people who are capable of creating the change that we need to happen now. And I want you to consider your role in contributing to Australia's very public discomfort with investing directly in Aboriginal people rather than policies. We must reframe how we invest in people, and we must tip the model of investment in Aboriginal affairs on its head. But this is where the issue begins. And I can't help but wonder if this system is why this $6 billion a year industry continues to flourish. Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to resolve this economic issue? How much more effective could we be if we were just to take a moment and say, the solutions lay with the people? After working with over 70 organizations all around Australia, Every role that's funded to help Aboriginal people comes with a long, long list of reasons why communities are at fault when results are not achieved. Shifting the blame disempowers everyone. And when decisions are based on assumptions about the capability of communities rather than the decision-maker themselves, then we're heading into very, very deep waters with nothing left to hold on to. What I have found is that the results that are achieved when Aboriginal people and communities are at the table as partners rather than recipients fast-track outcomes more than ever. If you're sitting here wondering what you can do to get answers and results out of this multi-billion dollar industry, I want you to consider some of these questions. If you're a leader or decision maker in government, NGO or corporate circles, I want you to ask yourself how capable your team really is when it comes to creating solutions with communities rather than for them. And if you're an Aboriginal person, I want you to ask yourself what role you're playing to demonstrate that our capability is the key to our success, rather than what we're seeing now, which is a sense of entitlement. As human beings, we must stop and hold a mirror up to ourselves and ask what kind of future we're creating for our children and grandchildren. Do we want a country that's known for its ignorance and intolerance, or do we want to create innovative, intelligent and practical solutions? Do we want to lead and impact our children based on our own personal biases, or do we want them to celebrate knowing the wonderful benefits of diversity? I leave you with this question as leaders today and decision makers today. What purpose does it serve to continue benefiting from Aboriginal disadvantage, and who will change begin with, if not for us? Thank you.
Our presenter today is Dr. Alex Wilson, and if there was ever a speaker here by popular demand, it's Dr. Wilson. As soon as I came into this position and began having conversations about Weiwenei, I heard Dr. Wilson's voice, uh, name over and over and over again. You've got to bring her onto campus. We would love to hear from her. And in the uh, few times that I've met you, I think this is the third time that we've met. We tend to pass each other on airplanes as we're in travel. Um, I understand why immediately. Dr. Wilson is Neo Nawak Inawak from Opaskwak Cree Nation. She is an associate professor and academic director of the Aboriginal Education Research Centre at the University of Saskatchewan. Her scholarship has greatly contributed to building and sharing knowledge about two-spirit identity, history and teachings, Indigenous research methodologies, and the prevention of violence in the lives of Indigenous peoples. Dr. Wilson is one of many organizers with the Adel Namor movement, integrating radical education movement work with grassroots interventions that prevent the destruction of land and water. She is particularly focused on educating about and protecting the Saskatchewan River Delta and supporting community-based food sovereignty efforts. Having co-developed a master's program in land-based education at the University of Saskatchewan, Dr. Wilson is now in the process of creating an international Indigenous land-based PhD program. Dr. Wilson speaks with a strength and, and um, uh, an eloquence that I know was very inspiring for a lot of young people. I know that a lot of young people have found a lot of strength in her work and in her voice. I'm so grateful that she's here on campus. And in just listening to some of the conversations between yourself and Dr. Trimby, who I admire very much as a leader, um, I know that good things are going to happen here as a result of this, this relationship. Would you please help me offer a very warm welcome to Dr. Alex Wilson. Fancy and Tuktumik, um, thanks Kevin for the introduction and thanks to Chickadee for the opening, I appreciate it. Um, so today I uh, have a lot to live up to, I guess, with that introduction. Um, and I've tried to develop a presentation that pretty much jams in everything I'm interested in. So we'll whip through it in about three or four hours, I think. <laughs> um, but I do appreciate those of you that made it here today, especially knowing that some of you came um, through the snowstorm just to be here, so uh, um, welcome. I'd like to start with this constellation. Do any of you recognize it? Orion? No? Um, it's, it's Orion in English, but in Cree, um, because I am Cree, our term for this constellation is Wisagijak. Now, do, how many of you are of Cree ancestry? Oh boy, we're outnumbered. <laughs> you better come sit up front. <laughs> okay, we're good, because this used to be part of our territory, so we um, sh sharing it with others now. Um, but this, this is our understanding of, of this uh, constellation as Wisagijak. And in our dialect, in our language, Wisagijak is known as a trickster character. But more than just a trickster character, the character or the energy of Wisagijak is something that um, changes all the time. And so in that sense, Wisagijak is a ongoing creator of, of the world or of energy. I wanted to start with this because um, if you look at the term Wisagijak, if you break it down, 
The first part means a sour, or means sour or tart. And there is a play on words there. And the last part of the word, achak, means star. So if I say kitachak, I'm, it's referring to your spirit. So there's an understanding in this being that there's a continuum of energy that links us to our cosmology, that links us to the wider universe, this continuum of energy that has existed for since the beginning of time as we know it. Um, another interesting thing about Wisagi Jack is Wisagi Jack is not a gendered character. So it, in hearing the stories, you'll see that Wisagi Jack can be a male or female or plant or animal. So on the highest spiritual level within a Cree cosmological understanding, there's no such thing as gender. So imagine that. <laughs> so that's the starting place we're coming from today, uh, is recognizing and validating that our knowledge system isn't just something that we came up with or read about. It's something that's intimately connected to land, water, and beyond that, the entire universe. So the stories are ancient. Um, this connects to our origin story of us here as human. And many of you probably recognize this painting. How many of you recognize it? If you grew up in Manitoba, pretty much we all had to go to, I say had to because it was one of those field trips where you went to what was called the uh, Museum of Man and Nature. Thankfully, they've allowed women in there now and they've changed the name, it's the Manitoba Museum. And I use this picture from um, the late Daphne Ojig. She gave me permission to use it. Uh, her painting that shows our story of origin how we connect to that wider universe and the character, I don't know if you can see, this character here is Wisagichak. So that's kind of the connector to um, our history beyond when the Earth was actually a planet. Um, of course, this isn't the appropriate time to tell this origin story here right now, and also it takes a long, a long time to tell properly, but um, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words in this, instance I would say that this painting is worth uh, um, billions of years and there's some features in the painting though that I, I want to point out that are significant um, when I look at it and that is that everything is connected so that represents the principle or the notion of relationality the understanding that in all of our indigenous languages um, around the planet even there's a saying that indicates there's a degree to which everything is related. And in Cree it means there's a degree to which everything is related and everything is not just human but extends beyond human to material, the physical world, plants, animals, water, sky, land itself, and then even beyond that to our concepts and, and the way that we think. So all of those things are connected and related and I think We've already kind of seen it, see it play into place today. Um, you know, that it's not by accident that Chickadee is here, that, that we are related, even though I didn't know she was going to be here, but the way that things happen with Kevin and, and probably all of you that are in this room, for some reason, you were brought here today. And so that is relationality. And with that relationality comes an accountability. So that's pretty, pretty um, important and strong and more than just like 
um, what Spider-Man would say, <laughs> um, <laughs> because there's a spiritual element to it, right? So when we do things with a good heart and a good way, then we're kind of leading us um, towards a certain direction. And that's what this story is telling, how we came to be and how we're connected intimately um, to the land. Incidentally, in our own understandings, we don't have a conflict with Western science's theory of evolution because they're basically telling the same things, just in a different way, right? Um, so I wanted to start with this because, uh, because of the territory that we're on. And um, as you know, there's been disruption or displacement of our connection to land and territory through different governmental policies, the doctrine of discovery, terra nullius, assuming that the land is empty. And this is a painting by Aaron Consmo, who um, represents that notion of the linkage between bodies and not just human bodies, but bodies of water and bodies of land as well. So we have been on our land continuously longer than any other peoples on the planet, the exception of Indigenous Australians. So over 50,000 years, um, the people from this territory have been on this land. And when I say this land, I don't mean like literally right here, I mean this territory that we're in, this land mass. We have stories in Cree about the last Ice Age about 10,000 years ago. We have stories that talk about the Ice Age before that. So if we're using time markers, again, we can be validated through the oral tradition and understanding um, that we were here. We migrated south when the ice came. We migrated back when the ice receded over thousands of years. So you can imagine with those many, many thousands of years of connection to land comes a kind of knowledge that just doesn't easily disappear overnight. And so for those of you that are indigenous in this room, um, I really thank you for being here because our bodies are the testament that, um, that our land knowledge is still here. And within a very short period of time, we have a lot of things that have happened to our communities and our bodies. And this is a kind of a something that Marie Batiste and I, I worked out, looked at, looked at the different eras of programming, I suppose you could call it, within post-secondary education. So we had a, a system of education that worked, it not just worked, like it, it uh, allowed us to survive, but not just survive, we knew how to thrive for tens of thousands of years. And then in a very short period of time, all that shifted. And I found it kind of funny or ironic when, um, you know, when the Morton County police and others were trying to evict the people from Standing Rock and they said it's for their own protection because they won't be able to survive the harsh <laughs> climate. It's like, right, okay. Um, so, you know, we've been doing it for a long time. We know what we're doing. Um, but in a very short period of time, the in assimilation and franchisement era in particular caused a lot of um, change in our communities. So you can see that that era lasted for a long period of time, and that's when the residential school era was introduced. It's also when other factors like Manitoba Hydro um, impacted our waterways. In the late 60s, early 70s, we start seeing 
student support programs at universities, and then in the 80s, dual programming like TEP programs, the Access program, and um, other programs like, uh, I'm not sure if they've got those here, but at the University of Manitoba, they had the Access program and SPSP. So many of us that started university in the 80s came through because of that, that reason, myself included, um, because I didn't graduate from high school, so it was my only chance really to get into um, the U of M. And then in the 90s, we start seeing this term indigenization kind of creeping in. Um, in the 90s though, and I would say even today, it's, it is more of an add and stir thing. So we're gonna add a little bit of um, indigenous and stir it around a bit. <laughs> um, but what people need to realize and, and remember is that the term indigenization has been linked historically to Christianization. So it was first used by the Catholic Church to, as a way to indoctrinate indigenous people so that they would become good Catholics. So we have that kind of baggage and history to remember when we're thinking about and acting on reconciliation and even using the term indigenization. So you can see why there'd be a little bit of resistance, especially from older folks, knowing that history or from scholars who have re done the research on it. So um, it does indigenization work, I don't know. Yet to be determined. Um, distributive education came about, of course, when technology changed and now we can kind of take the university to um, indigenous communities. But here we are now with an opportunity to support a radical paradigm shift. It's not so radical because we know it. It's been around for thousands of years, but we do have an opportunity now to shift things, and that would be to return to an indigenous or indigenist worldview. And by indigenist, I mean similar to feminism. It's a, it's a set of values, beliefs, and, and um, knowledge that's grounded in certain principles. And so you don't have to be indigenous heritage to follow an indigenous worldview. And that's different from appropriation, and I'll explain that later. But so what I propose is um, that now we have the opportunity in history where we know these other things just really don't, don't work for us. Um, we can show incremental change in education uh, for indigenous folks, but really situation isn't that much better than um, in the past 40, 50 years. And how do we do that? Well, of course, because I love land-based education, to me that's one of the solutions. Um, now, this is just to show the Saskatchewan River Delta. So as mentioned, I'm from the Apaskwayat Cree Nation, and I was trying to figure out how, using waterways, how you would get there from here. It's not that hard, actually. Um, if you look at this map here, you can see here we are in Winnipeg. Winnipeg connects through the red to Lake Winnipeg. Lake Winnipeg, 10th largest freshwater lake in the world, number one endangered. Connects to the Saskatchewan River Waterway and here's Opasquiac over here. Um, you can see the, the um, Saskatchewan River Delta, the large river basin. It is one of the largest freshwater river basins on the planet. It's also endangered. It's on the top of the list for um, 
survival of the planet. The reason for that is because people consider it the lungs of the planet. It filters the water and the air, so it is necessary for us to have clean air that we maintain and preserve this water system. And you can see all the cities that are along here and uh, Pasquayax at the end here. So everything also that goes into that waterway affects communities downstream. And which communities do you think are downstream? <laughs> Indigenous communities, right. So now we start to see that um, it's not just an equal, everybody gets a little bit of water from the river. There are people that are using the river and misusing the river in a way that are that is irreversibly impacting people that live down here. Um, you can see also that there are many, I mean obviously thousands, a hundred thousand according to our old license plate uh, of rivers and lakes in Manitoba and this is just a, a shot of, of some of them. So you can see there are different things that have impacted the river. Um, the E.B. Campbell Dam in Nipwin, the Gardner Dam by Saskatoon, the Grand Rapids Dam in Grand Rapids, Manitoba Hydro, and Manitoba Hydro incidentally considers this whole area as reserve, like meaning that if we need to open the gates, this is just land we can flood indiscriminately. So if anything happens in the south, they can just push that water north, and that's what we've seen happen in um, Fairford and other First Nations, and even in my home community where, um, <clears throat> where flooding has just happened because of pressure from the south. Um, to look at this map again, you'll see that it's also connected to the red, which connects to the US. So water drains from farms into these waterways and the water is full of phosphates and fertilizers. So this is one of the main concerns for those of us living in the Delta is that our waterways have been polluted continually over the past especially 40 years. And prior to about 10 years ago, even hospitals dumped their waste into the water, meaning that there were, have been contaminants continually flowing in there. There are many people that live along the river that just drink straight from the river without filtration. So you can imagine that the compounded impact, you know, on people's bodies. There are a number of factors that influence or control the waterway system. I already talked about Manitoba and Sask Power, but another one is Ducks Unlimited. And, um, not many people know this, but Ducks Unlimited have almost full control of most of the waterways in the Saskatchewan River Delta system and in northern Manitoba. Um, they sound like kind of a cool Ducks Unlimited, like we're going to protect ducks and waterways. Uh, but for the past 40 years or so, people in northern Manitoba have been really cognizant and watching what Ducks Unlimited has been doing. Because if any of you that are over well, if any of you remember the 80s, <laughs> um, you'll remember the garrison diversion. And that was a huge issue in Manitoba. Let me see if I can go back to this map here. Um, the garrison diversion was, was built. It was, it's a waterway in South Dakota, North Dakota, right near Standing Rock, incidentally. 
And the idea was that they were going to connect all the waterways in Manitoba to divert fresh water to North Dakota so that it could be used to irrigate farms there and also to be diverted for fresh water because as you know for decades people have known that water is going to be an issue and governments have known that's I think that's why C uh, C38 and 45 were passed through so quickly um, during the Harper regime and um, and you know they they know what they're doing when they plan these things uh, so that again what would have happened is the irrigation would have drained from that water system into the red and then would have come down this way uh, luckily that was stopped but at any time it wouldn't take much again to connect all those waterways to the US so just something to think about things that make you go hmm um, oops going backwards so we have the trickster with us so all of this uh, area has also been impacted by climate change obviously phosphates from farms so that bodies have been regulated during the residential school era the Indian Act Christianity and other pol um, policies but it's not just bodies of water it's also human bodies and um, the Native Youth Sexual Health Network has done a really great job of reporting how and showing how and the connection between resource extraction and violence, particularly against Indigenous women and Two-Spirit people. And Amnesty International two weeks ago came out with a report that basically says the same thing and outlines how it happens. So when we're talking about land and water, we're always necessarily talking about um, Indigenous bodies, particularly those of women and Two-Spirit people. So traditionally, our policies and laws were kept in place through practice, meaning through land-based practices, through stories, legends, and survival practices, and um, recognized and validated through ceremony. Uh, so if we use the iceberg as an analogy, and I realize these are changing because of climate change, um, so I may have to shave a bit off my uh, iceberg here, but. Um, uh, it's analogous to culture. So if we're talking about it, thinking about culture, about one-eighth is above the water and seven-eighths is below. So the stuff above the water is situational. It can change within an hour, a day even. Uh, music, clothing, food. If you think about your own family, you may have three generations of people. Think of your grandparents. They may wear different clothing, listen to different music than you, or eat different food but their underlying worldview may be the same. Situational changes, but the enduring values, worldview, philosophy, cosmology, how you fit into the larger universe, epistemology, your knowledge system, your science, ontology is what you know to be truth and how, how do you come to know truth, methodology, how you go about finding out new knowledge, and pedagogy, which is the way that you teach the principles that inform your teaching practice. All of those things are enduring and change very slowly over time. That is really what culture is about. But what has happened during the process of colonization is that this top part has been severed from the bottom part, disconnected, intentionally through policy and practice. Uh, it's meant a displacement from meaningful relationships with land. And now what we see happening is this top part becomes the definition of what culture is. And I'll give you an example of this from my own university. Um, 
University of Saskatchewan, I went and looked up their website a couple of years ago and I thought, I wonder what the representation of Indigenous people is on our campus. We have about over 2,000 Indigenous students. And um, I started looking and I started counting things. And I realized that over 125 images on there, that over 100 were of, guess what? Hmm? Yeah, male powwow dancers. And then teepees. And I thought, well, you know, that's great. Like, this is not, you know, don't confuse this with not honoring or recognizing and validating our, you know, our culture and stuff. But it is a very superficial understanding of who we are. Intentional, I would say. Because what happens if you start to recognize that we do have valid knowledge systems? Real question, what happens? Well, yeah, the university would lose power, not just the university, but settler colonialism, right, would lose the power structure upon which it is premised. So, um, so there's a reason why mascots are still around. It's not just because of racism. There's a reason why misogyny is still around. It's not just because some guys don't like women. Like, these are bigger power structures that have existed and have formed and being reified over time um, continually and all intimately connected to land, and the displacement from land. So, um, you know, we know that the 60 scoop residential school era has impacted our communities tremendously. So now even for Indigenous people, for some people, this becomes what their culture is because they no longer have that access to this, these knowledge systems that are connected with land. Um, the elders in Mount Polly, some of you know about what's happened there with the tailing um, ponds, mining ca contamination spilled from the tailing ponds to pollute the waterways there. One of the elders said that during the residential school era, our children were taken from the land. But during the era that we're in right now, the land is being taken from the children. So there's a real understanding by Indigenous elders especially that everything is connected to land and resources. And so that displacement has meant for even for our Aboriginal people or Indigenous people, sometimes this becomes the, the definer of what culture is. And um, is it possible through decolonization to realign the top with the bottom? Not sure, not sure if that's possible. So um, again, this is promoting the importance of returning to land-based practices and understandings. So what does reconciliation mean in that context? Um, I'll leave that one for you guys to think about because uh, again, framed from within a Catholic worldview, that's, that's where the term came from and that's where the idea came from. For any of you that know people or even maybe yourself have been in a, an abusive relationship, you know that often the solution is not just everybody get along, get back together. 
And that's kind of what some people think reconciliation is trying to do. So without those deeper level understandings of worldview and ideology, um, it can be really a superficial exercise of just making people get along. So that's not the route we want to go on. I don't think anybody really wants that. So, um, so what we're talking about, the tip of the iceberg, I, can, I refer to that as like the multiculturalism model. And I know you've all been to Folklorama. <laughs> Not putting down Folklorama, just saying <laughs> that um, in every province there's something like that, Mosaic, Folk Fest, Folklorama. And that is just celebrating the stuff on the tip of the iceberg, fine. There was a time when that was a big deal to just, you know, allow people to, allow people to, you know, wear their regalia, eat their own foods, you know, because it was outlawed for so long. Uh, but we're at a point now where we're realizing that that multiculturalism model just doesn't work. In fact, it actually can reinforce all kinds of supremacy. Uh, multiculturalism model was government sponsored, meaning that there was a multiculturalism act. Uh, it is inclusion through tolerance. Leonard, I don't know, what would you say if I tolerate you? I tolerate you. <laughs> I say it all the time. <laughs> it doesn't feel too good, right? So there's an understanding there that, um, you know, there's a power dynamic and I'm just going to allow you to be tolerated. Um, it's not picking on you, Leonard. <laughs> um, so you can see that it's coming from a certain kind of framework or understanding and it's recognizing that there are different groups. So, you know, what's problematic with that is again, that it's saying that there's one group and then as the standard and others are kind of exotic variations, recognizing we are all equal. Um, education for racial harmony. And I remember, I think it was 1993 or something in Winnipeg, city of Winnipeg was the year for racial harmony. I actually worked for the mayor that year on a project <laughs> Uh, um, and so, so you can see how these narratives have been around for a while. Um, but what does that do? We say, let's just all get along. Real question. Limits dialogue. What? Limits dialogue. Limits dialogue, okay. Erases history. Erases history, right. So both of those things. It denies the ongoing historical and current um, genocide that's happening. Uh, celebration of culture sounds good, but again, it's, it's ignoring all these other things that are going on at the same time. It assumes that this is a new thing because of immigration, and within this model, cultural, culture and ethnicity are definable, meaning that they're not, not allowed to change, they're not contextual. Uh, it reinforces the four-race myth, and then it's kind of promoting that form of indigenization that um, hasn't worked for us yet. So what we're proposing through land-based education, uh, as one way, is to move to an anti-oppressive approach. It's not institutionalized yet, meaning there's no government policy or act that kind of is an impetus for institutions to move to that way. Um, it is taking responsibility for ending oppression so in that assumption that it's, it's saying, like, we know that there is oppression, then we need to end it. It's challenging the status quo and um, different, what is standard and different forms of supremacy, like white supremacy, 
male supremacy, straight supremacy. It examines power relations and all the interconnections between them. Um, it assumes that change has to be institutional. It's not just one individual um, recycling or something like that. It's, it has to be a huge uh, institutional change. It challenges stereotypes and appropriation. It includes history or history. And um, incidentally, you know, working with uh, kids in schools, it's so easy to change language because you start using the term herstory and they start using it, you know, uh, and they get it. It's adults. <laughs> We're the ones that uh, are causing all these problems. It challenges assumptions of social constructs, so social constructs of things like race and even gender, and that can be challenging sometimes as well. Yep. Okay, the four races myth is the understanding that um, came about in the 1800s, originated uh, with Linnaeus, Blumenbach, and all of those that said initially there were four races of humans. Um, when they came up with the animal, like the classification, the taxonomy of categorizing humans, um, there was a categorization based into four, and then later three. But within that categorization, there was also a hierarchy, and they linked arbitrary features such as skin color, eye, eye shape, and hair texture um, to a certain color. They also linked um, character attributes. So for example, if you were um, red, you were from the Americas, you were, um, easily angered and stubborn. That was the character uh, characteristic. If you were Asian, you were yellow, you were avaricious. Uh, if you were black, you were negligent and non-caring. If you were white, you were inventive and gentle in nature. <laughs> These are the actual words from the 1800s that came up with this four race theory. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's, it's mutated over time and people have, have started using it and even within our own communities have misused it in connection with traditional teachings where the traditional teachings weren't um, organized that way. And whether you put them in a circle or not, it's still doing the same thing. Um, if, for those of you that are, you know, part of a, a society that has more than one or two cultural backgrounds, you'll know that to categorize a whole group of Asians as yellow is really problematic, right? <laughs> categorize them as avaricious is also problematic. So, um, you know, there's been a lot written about that and a lot of elders have been doing work around making sure that that false teaching is not promoted anymore. Um, so this connects to this term epistemicide. So epistemicide is the severing of knowledge systems. So genocide is, you know, what's happened to indigenous people and others around the planet. And uh, I don't, they're calling it cultural genocide now, the softer, gentle genocide. <laughs> um, but really, by, ch by putting cultural in front of it, it doesn't really change the heinous nature of genocide. Femicide is mass killing of women. And then epistemicide is, is the killing of knowledge systems. So that is what's come with the displacement from our land and land knowledge. It has been intentional. It's a disruption. Um, Grossfugel, who is a scholar at 
um, UC Berkeley um, makes the distinction that in Western philosophical thought, Descartes, one of the most famous philosophers, um, who also kind of shapes, shapes a lot of theory, but also practice and education and, and many different applications. His famous saying, I think, therefore I am. You probably all heard that. Well, Grossfugel goes beyond that and kind of takes, extends that to the modern context saying that um, today it is, I, I exterminate, therefore I am. And another extension is, I conquer, therefore I am. So this extermination and conquering or the thought of conquering or the idea of the wish to conquer is very much in line with that philosophical thought, I think, therefore I am, aligned with the doctrine of discovery, terra nullius, and other, other um, ideological belief systems. Um, so epistemicide has impacted uh, Indigenous people. Um, Sandy Grande and uh, Rebecca Sockbees and Cardinal are two Indigenous scholars who write about epistemicide from their own uh, Indigenous communities and their perspectives. So the effect or impact of all of this is as asymmetrical as, as Leanne Simpson said. Certain bodies are impacted in, in more pronounced ways than other bodies. Uh, the effect is institutionalized and in, interpersonal. It's me meant a disconnection from meaningful relationships, including with each other, but also to land and water, which leads to the destruction of land and water. It's normalized violence, violence becomes internalized, language is lost or changed, binary gender roles become entrenched and other binaries as well. Spirituality becomes religion when it is institutionalized by schools, prisons, CFS, healthcare, etc. And it reinforces a certain kind and privileges a certain worldview and dismisses others, so promotes hegemony. Uh, leads to dogma, and dogma is, that's just the way it is. We've always done it that way. But when you start looking at some of, when people say that, and you start examining or talking to elders or doing some research, you'll say, realize, well, actually, it wasn't always that way. Um, this is quite new in the scheme of 50,000 years. <laughs> um, so that is linked to historical colonialism that's learned and imposed and impacts us in a contemporary context. Uh, leads to hybridization of ideas and concepts. Concepts even become gendered and it can promote pan-Indianism or even pan-Creeism, quote Real Carrier. Um, so the resulting dogma can result in the perpetuation and validation of heteropatriarchy um, male privilege, misogyny, hatred, and fear. All this good stuff, right? Um, so uh, how do we, how are we a part of that in educational institutions? Um, we start teaching to learning outcomes, teaching to assessments, and now even culture becomes measured through cultural competency <coughs> measures. Spirituality becomes institutionalized so that it aligns with standardized curricula or policies and cultural, cultural knowledge becomes commodified. You could, you're probably thinking of examples, right, as I'm going along. I did say there was an exit exam, so. Um, so we, we know the reality here in Winnipeg especially. 
the issue of indigenous women, two-spirit people that are murdered and missing, violence, um, queer youth suicide, trans youth leaving school. We're, we're, we know that indigenous identified trans youth are leaving school as early as third grade. Now ask yourself this, what would make it so that a third grader is not safe at school? And imagine the self-preservation that it takes for a child to be able to say, I'm not going to school, I don't feel safe there. That's incredible. Um, unfortunately though, 56% of Indigenous trans youth have attempted suicide. So these aren't just theoretical things that I'm throwing out here. These are real life impacts that are hurting our community. Ideology that translates to death. And, and so it's really important to be able to, to go back and say, okay, where did this idea come from? And maybe if I change my own practice, I can prevent a death. Well, to me, that's an easy decision, especially for teachers. It's uncomfortable, I know, especially when we're talking about spirituality. If you divide your classroom by male-female, what happens to a child that's gender fluid? What do they do? Cry in the middle. Cry, they what? They cry in the middle of the Yeah, well, or they don't come to school. They stop coming if they know that's going to happen. You know, people say, well, what side of the circle do uh, girls sit on? Well, how many sides of a circle are there? There's the inside and there's the outside. So um, if it's that easy, then I really, I really ask you, like, if you can, I know if you're uncomfortable right now, I'm sorry about that, but there is a pedagogy and discomfort. And transformation isn't possible unless we kind of shake up our own belief systems. And I, I know I've had to many, many times during my life. So if it's one practice that is going to save a life, then why wouldn't you do it? Same thing around body regulation. Women and two-spirit people are over-regulated through policy and through our own practice. And to the point now where white people are starting to be the gatekeepers of our bodies. Uh, white people telling us how to sit, where to sit, what to wear in a ceremony, even. That's not cool. <laughs> because if anything, we have the right to our ceremonies. We have the right to that land knowledge. We do. It's, it should be our right as people who come from this territory. Um, so, you know, the emergency suicides, again, in northern Manitoba, Cross Lake, that those girls that committed suicide, most of them were lesbian identified. Of course, that was told, people were told not to mention that aspect. But we have to talk about these things because they're not just random things that are happening, their bodies that are impacted because of the society that we create that creates risk for, for people. 0.2% um, of the total land reserved for First Nations, 0.2% uh, of Canada. So we've gone from 100% to 0.2%. It's, it's not, so you can see how land is connected. And then even in Manitoba, over 1 million acres still not transferred under, under the TLE. So land is our, in Swampy Cree, Uski, um, it's not just that physical land, it's land and all of its relationships. So water is part of this and skies and air are a part of this as well. <clears throat> 
So this is one of our natural laws in Swampy Cree, Sagi Huewen. Um, it's the law or the, the way of being upon which everything hinges. It's the one kind of main thing, and then everything else built is off of that. If you return to that trickster character in the beginning, Wisagi Jack, in the middle of the word Wisagi Jack is Sagihi. Sagihi is the root for the term love. So built into our natural law is an understanding that love is the thing upon which everything hinges. And that's beautiful and it's powerful. And um, to know that that is our underlying philosophy, I think that is why <clears throat> that is why people aren't here today because they're at Standing Rock. And that is why our you know, family members and water protectors are doing what they're doing in whatever way they're, they're able to, whether it's teaching, doing a lecture or you know, being out there praying or whatever it is. Um, and that's a natural law. And when that is not followed, then things start to fall apart, like karma, pastahuen. If you kick or kick a dog or an animal, there's a consequence. These are laws in physics as well. And um, I had to take a lot of physics classes in university just to understand some of these very simple terms in Cree. But I was grateful that I was able to. Um, it doesn't mean let's just all hold hands and get along <laughs> and you know sing a song of Kumbaya or whatever. Um, it means that sometimes you have to make difficult decisions and stand up. So I would say that when people declare who they are, like around their sexuality, that's a really impactful thing that follows um, this law of Sagi Uwewen, and that we need to honor that. Uh, so I use the term coming in. This came from my own doctoral research that I finally finished in 2007, but I've been working on this <coughs> issue of two-spiritedness and understanding gender and sexual diversity um, for my whole life, really, um, but in a more formalized way, research with two-spirit identified people in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. And um, we came to this understanding that we'll use the term coming in rather than coming out because coming in is a relational term. And um, so if you want to learn more about that, you can send me an email and we can talk about it more. But basically it is uh, LGBTQ First Nations people's identities represent an interconnection of spirituality, sexuality, culture, gender, and land. And that we can form empowered identities despite all of these overwhelmingly um, harmful governmental policies that have happened historically. Um, part of this coming in has been the notion of body sovereignty and gender self-determination, that as nations we can't be sovereign unless each individual has sovereignty over their own bodies. And part of that is being, being able to say how you identify in terms of gender. And again, remembering that in Cree and others, that gender binary didn't ex doesn't exist in the language. Even though we may have specific terms for people, that's not the primary framing of the language. I'm linking this to Idle No More because that has been very much um, the energy that has propelled the movement. 
I know I only have a few minutes, so I'm kind of going fast here, but you can see, you know, um, social media is important for the movement, but um, today we're at the fourth anniversary of Idle No More, and even though um, people may not be wearing their Idle No More t-shirts as much, <laughs> there are actually more people involved in the movement now than there ever were. Idle No More is the current iteration of 500 years of resistance to colonialism, but it's not just that, it's also the validation of indigenous cosmology and worldviews. So, um, so that it's really important to acknowledge that and including Two-Spirit and trans people as part of the, um, the direction or, or informing the direction of Idle No More has been really important. And um, when we talk about the inquiry, murdered and missing inquiry, that's important as well. It Starts With Us is a community-run database, and part of that database is includes a trans and two-spirit page. And you'll probably, if you look at those names, many of them are from Winnipeg, and three of them are friends of my own. Um, Colton Pratt, still missing. And, um, you know, you probably recognize maybe people from your own community. Um, so these are just some photos around land defense, and again, this is around the sky. So it's not just land and water, but the sky um, trying to stop the 30-meter telescope. And then um, what we're working on now is the One House Many Nations, because again, people are impacted in intersectional ways. So it's Indigenous women, Indigenous people, and Two-Spirit people that are impacted by houselessness. And I say houselessness because as Indigenous people, we have a home. This is our home. This land is our home. So we're never really homeless. It's just that people don't have, some people don't have houses, and that's a big issue. Uh, so this is a project that we're working on in the Pasquayak to reclaim our wood that was clear-cut from our region, processed, brought to southern Manitoba, and shipped back with televisions and stuff on it. We're taking those pallets back and we've created a kind of wood that's sustaining energy, a small sustainable village to start. Um, and these are our students in the land-based program um, working with pictographs and understanding the spiritual connection to land. So I'll just kind of end there uh, again by acknowledging and um, making a case for supporting land-based education as a way of undoing colonial hierarchies, heteropatriarchy, and different forms of oppression, also as a way that is very much connected to that philosophy of sagi hiwewan, or love, showing love in our actions. And this is, uh, this is just a banner drop on the Saskatchewan River when that oil spill happened. So we've been defending that river for a long time, uh, especially from hydro and other impacts. So uh, with that, I just want to say which means thanks to each and every one of you for the invitation to be here. And there's my email address. Feel free to send me a message.
project began when good friends of mine um, had lost their family land over time, uh, their traditional land. There, there's a village site on that land. They have thousands of years of history on that land. It was going to be subdivided uh, by the current landowner and sold for development. The local land trust stepped in and was able to purchase the land and stop the subdivision, but it was still out of the native family's ownership. So I was speaking with both the land trust and the family, and they were trying to think about ways they could work together and how they could structure a good partnership. Um, it was good that the land was taken out of development, but it was not as good that it wasn't in indigenous, in the family's ownership. So with that, uh, with those questions, I started on a path of looking for examples of native land trusts and of tribes and land trusts collaborating to bring land back into native hands. And uh, the process was really one of looking at the whole structure of land trusts, which are private conservation organizations that buy land in order to conserve it or place conservation easements on land in order to prevent development. Um, so looking at that structure and seeing how these non-native non -native conservation organizations were buying land within native homelands, not working with native people locally, usually, um, and, and continuing the process of keeping land out of native hands. So it was kind of a, a colonial conservation continuing into the present. And as I found doing this work, there were actually a lot of non-native land trusts that were eager to think about how they could partner with tribes and families and even help support the development of native land trusts and move those lands into tribal hands with some conservation protections. It's really exciting to be here with um, Chairman Lopez and Executive Director um, Holbrook um, because their native land trust organizations have grown so much over the last few years and been very successful. So I'm honored to sit here with them. Okay, so allow me to pose some questions. If I could ask each of you to describe your native land trusts, how they formed, and how you came to that work. Um, thank you, Beth. Thank, thank you for having us here, Cora. And thank you all for being here. Again, my name is Valentin Lopez, and I'm the chairman of the Ama Mutsun Tribal Band. Our tribe is comprised of those descendants um, um, of those that were taken to Mission San Juan Batista uh, near the Gilroy Hollister area and Mission Santa Cruz. Our creation story takes place at Mount, uh, uh, at Mount Umanum in Santa Cruz. And there, um, the, you know, there's a long story about you know, uh, you know, that, that talks a lot about the animals and how they were, and, and how they, were, they came to us, plus the plants. Uh, but whenever uh, the Creator made man, He made man and woman last. Um, but He gave us uh, the ability to think, to problem solve, to figure things out. And He also gave us a responsibility to take care of all living things, uh, the four-legged, the winged, the fin, the plants, etc. And uh, that was our responsibility, and so our ancestors took that responsibility um, uh, very seriously. We developed bird clan, deer clan, a leaf clan, etc. And, and for thousands of years, you know, 10, 12, 14,000 years, and 800, 900, perhaps even 1,000 generations, our people worked to study the lands and to take care of all, all living things. Um, and then came the mission period, which was 
uh, horrific on our people. We lost 50% of our uh, population during the, the uh, mission period. That was followed by the, the uh, Mexican period and then the American period. Uh, when the, uh, uh, an example you know, of the Ohlone, we are an Ohlone tribe. Uh, there was, uh, in our area, there were 30,000 Ohlone's at the start of the mission. At the close of the mission, there were less than 100. So that's just an incredible loss. <clears throat> now, during that period, you know, then the Mexican period was brutal on our people uh, and, and the American people uh, period as well. Um, in all honesty, we lost a lot of our indigenous knowledge for land stewardship, land management, knowledge of the animals, knowledge of the plants, etc. And um, um, in 2006, we were having a council meeting and the elders came to us and they said, Creator, our creation story tells us we're here to take care of all living things. And Creator has never rescinded our obligation. We need to find a way to get back on that path. Now, our tribe is very poor. Many of our people live below the poverty line. Uh, many of our people do not graduate from high school. Very few of our people have employment that pays above minimum wage. We only have a handful of our people who can afford to live within our tribal territory. The majority of them live in the Madeira, Fresno, Modesto areas. And so after that meeting, I walk out just saying, man, how in the world are we going to do that? We're very poor. We own no land. We don't have any resources. How are we going to be able to, to, to get back and take care of, of, our, of our lands? But it isn't directed from Creator. We have to find a way. And, um, and so we talked about it among council members and talked about it with elders. And we didn't really see a path, but we just believed and we prayed and we had, held ceremony. And five, six months later, we get a call from the superintendent of Pinnacles National Park. And uh, he had just transferred in out of the park that he, he had just left from. Uh, he, they had a wonderful relationship with the Native Americans there. And he wanted to continue that at Pinnacles National Park. And so he wanted to meet with us. And we started talking. And he invited us to become part of the park, you know, to, to consult with them and work with them on, 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 the, on, on, the, on the condors, for example. They had uh, huge stands of deer grass and white root sedge, which are very important for basketry material. They had big fields of, of, of native uh, of, of native seeds like um, red maids, for example. That's a very important food plant for us and such. So we started going out there and working. And then our elders and our members uh, started going out there. It wasn't unusual to see on a weekend 75 of our members out there working to, uh, to try and, and work with the lands and to relearn our traditions. In 2011 or 2012, we were actually named Outstanding Volunteers of the Year for the National Park Service. And our vice chair and I were flown to Washington, D.C. to receive uh, the award for Outstanding Volunteer. And that was pretty neat, but it was just our commitment to follow of, of our obligation to Creator that allowed that to happen. From there, mushroomed other thing, other opportunity. We uh, started talking to state parks. They, they heard what we were doing, and state parks wanted to work with us. Stanford, Berkeley, UC Santa Cruz wanted to work with us. 
other uh, land trusts wanted to work with us. And uh, we started pulling things together, started getting our youth involved as far as trying to find jobs of stewardship for them so that they can work and, and, and restore that relationship with Mother Earth. And uh, it's gone wonderful. In 2012, we developed our Amamutsin Land Trust. And um, we have a lot of help in that regard. Uh, we have a volunteer list of well over 100 people who we call. We can have you know, 15, 20 of them every time want to come on out and work with us and help us. So we're very, we feel very fortunate. Um, we don't own any land at this time. We, have, we hold an easement. And we have um, uh, a 265-acre uh, partial that we have designated as a cultural preserve with state parks. And that allows us to co-manage it with state parks. Um, we do a lot of, of restoring our lands uh, from the, using the science, but also we talk to our neighbors to the north, to our tribal neighbors to the north, southeast, to try and uh, regain our, you know, we, a lot of times we trade knowledge or to gain the knowledge they have. We restore, we do a lot to, to um, regarding our spirituality, we restore our spirituality because if we don't restore our spirituality, none of our other restoration programs matter. And then we also, um, um, we, 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 we feel that we found our path back. We have a, it helped us develop a wellness. We have historic trauma where we have high rates of suicide and addictions and stuff like that. But we're finding that our time, getting back on the path of our ancestors is helping us address those kinds of needs and stuff like that. So we think long term there's going to be incredible benefits. Uh, currently we have a tending and gathering permits for over 100,000 acres. And we know that someday soon we will be able to acquire some lands so we can start bringing our members back. Um, so that's, that's kind of our, uh, what our Alma Mutsum Land Trust is doing, what we're about, and what we hope to do in the future. But uh, um, we feel that it's the right thing, and we're very thankful for, for Creator to bring in us to this moment. Um, hello, everyone. Good afternoon. My name is Ken Holbrook. I'm here to proudly represent the Maidu Summit Consortium and Conservancy of the Plumas County region of the Northern Sierra Nevada. Uh, we're a native land conservancy and we're an emerging one at that. We, um, well first I'll tell you a little bit about myself. My name's Ken Holbrook. I grew up in the Mountain Maidu tribe and uh, as I was growing up, <clears throat> working for a land trust was probably the last thing uh, in my mind as a way of uh, spending my career. And I think, like, like Mr. Uh, Lopez, we've come to learn the importance of the, the work that this sector does and have come to learn how important it can be in the greater mission that we have as a tribe, as a people, of recovering, recovering health, recovering a sense of connectivity to resources and a place on the land again. We are very, very fortunate in our region. We um, were never taken away from our land. This happened to a number of people, native people across the country, as you know, uh, through forced relocation and just a lot of suffering that had taken place in the last 150 years. Our story uh, was much in the same uh, vein. A number of our people, especially those who lived down in the valley where agriculture was emerging 150 years ago, did fall victim to this and were relocated. And it's, it's something that my family, my clan, and my tribe, those who still remain in the area, give great thanks to all the time. I believe that the path back 
towards a real connectivity with our resources is greatly aided by the fact that we had not physically lost touch with a lot of these lands while that said on the other hand the flip side of the coin was we sort of lived with the misery of being suffering of lack of access to those resources even though we were living in the little towns that were popping up in these very areas we're surrounded by public lands in our region United States Forest Service to the north of us BLM and and great tracts of land that are being managed by agencies and governmental groups historically have entirely left out the Mountain Maidu people's voice when it comes to management when it comes to recreation when it comes to education about those resources we've suffered for a number of ways because of that fact we have lost a lot of traditional arts and I use the word lost we've lost a lot of practice of it but the knowledge is retained by a select few who have been sort of the the folks who would go out and collect whether they were allowed to or not and because so many of the youth in our area have been not allowed to learn these practices because they don't have the access to go out and gather the materials required to do the the basket weaving a lot of music instrument development and a lot of the other traditional arts that we practice it it's really provided a despair in our community that's really I think accentuated by a lingering xenophobic attitude towards a lot of our tribe in our region and so we've had these factors working against us in the past however a new generation of leadership is emerging in our community and looking towards modern you know land trust as inspiration as a technique a tool for folks from the tribe to begin acting outside of the guise of tribal politics outside of the forces that have prevented real social growth in our area as well as some of these sort of more standard models of education that they're trying to in you know insert themselves into and have oftentimes a great difficulty doing that coming home either very very frustrated or having become educated and gone off and received an education in a very traditional setting and then not found their way back home in our region there's very little industry logging has been one of the traditional industries in our area that's been a way of having an income and being able to live on those lands and traditionally a lot of folks from the tribe you know part was partaking in that work and so there's a lot of suffering that's led to this great need for the youth to become leaders for the youth to be reintroduced to nature reintroduced to traditional practices and be reintroduced to ideas such as chairman Lopez shared with you earlier today that there truly is a mandate if you are a mighty person from creator that you steward lands that's truly why you were born and without the ability to go and learn about those lands to recover traditional knowledge that is so barely hanging on in 2015 by some of the the few elders that still exist by having the opportunities to go out on lands that we're trying our best to acquire and own and provide freely to all the folks of the tribe it's truly been an avenue of recovery for us we are a new fledging fledgling 
organization we're trying to learn work that we're not accustomed to doing but in developing the kinds of relationships with the local land trust in our region regional land trust leadership groups such as cclt land trust alliance a national group we're really becoming players in a new community and a new sector and it's allowing us knowledge of this great cross-section of the non-native community in the world that truly cares very very much about nature about resources and about protecting and preserving those resources not only for our own generation but for the generations to come so this is all very very reassuring we see a lot of opportunity in our region and as we continue moving forward and align ourselves with a lot of groups such as the Amamutsun Land Trust, Native American Land Conservancy, and a number of other emerging Native American Land Trust groups, we find a lot of solidarity, shared knowledge that can be very useful in our area, as well as the inspiration to continue to find new ways of, of, of living a good life in Maidu country. Each of the different native land trusts, and there are at least six, I think now seven, with the, with the Mashpee uh, Conservancy out east. Uh, there's also the Native Conservancy in Alaska, uh, the Intertribal Sinkion Wilderness Council. Um, who am I forgetting? the Kumeyaay Degeño Land Conservancy. There's all these wonderful native land conservancies emerging, and each of them have some amazing programs that bring youth and family out on the land together, doing work together. Also, you mentioned logging. Um, people are being re-employed in restoration. So uh, people who used to work in logging these areas are now able to come back working with the land trust in order to decommission old roads, do stream restoration, bring back places for the fish. So it's, it's a really nice way to bring um, employment in the community uh, in a good way and restoring the land. I'd like to ask um, our panelists maybe to talk a little bit about your work with the youth or in facilitating community access to the land, um, and then we'll move to some challenges. Okay, working with youth. Um, I want to just make one quick comment on what you said about the land trust. The, the, a lot of the land trusts, they were very good at acquiring land. And then whenever they would get it, they would put a fence around it, maybe put a path through it and call that public access. But you had to stay on the path. You couldn't touch the plants. You could take pictures of them, but you couldn't leave the path. Um, but now, in the Bay Area in particular, um, there's no more big plots of land to acquire. They've acquired over uh, land, uh, they've conserved over one and a half million acres in the greater San Francisco Bay Area, including this area here. One and a half million acres, that's a lot. But now that they've acquired it, it's easy to raise money for acquisition. But they're having to change the two now to stewardship. And um, a lot of funders aren't willing to, to pay for that. They say, but wait a minute, we bought the land. What more do you want kind of thing? And then the other thing is the, the, the land owners now, they're, they're just saying, well, steward the land, what does that mean? And a lot of people are having a hard time defining stewardship. And so that's where we right, are coming in now and doing a lot of consulting on stewardship. So we can talk about that in a little bit. 
uh, with, but talking about the education, I just wanted to let you know about the difference between uh, how the trend was for acquisition, but they never, but but they didn't do much with stewardship, and we need to focus on that. Um, education. We our our tribe has um, education as a critical one of the uh, components, uh, a critical component of our tribe. And for education, what we do is uh, we do a lot of working with public to teach them our traditional native land stewardship ways because we want them to learn those ways because we feel that it is that, uh, that way of caring and developing the relationship with Mother Earth, caring for the plants, uh, growing the plants in their natural environments, bringing back the native plants, that that kind of uh, caring and stewarding is what's going to protect us uh, and, and, and allow us to be sustained into the future. And so we do a lot of things, like say for example, we have a great relationship with the Girl Scouts of America. How do you like that? <laughs> you know, we have um, uh, at, at that state cultural preserve we have near Año Nuevo, the Girl Scouts, they have two camps up in the mountains up there in Santa Cruz Mountains. And so we regularly go up there and talk to them about our traditions, our ways, our history, and they always show that, uh, put activities in there, how to make tule boats, how to make uh, um, uh, abalone um, uh, 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 necklaces, um, and, and teaching them songs, traditional songs, and talk to them about the importance of relationship and of, um, <clears throat> and of praying and talking and having ceremony with the plants. Uh, we do that with them. And then at times, they'll come down and they'll work with us down at the Quiroste Valley, where we have them help us. Um, we try not to abuse them too much by <laughs> making them work too hard. But they do come down and they work with us, and we talk to them about plant identification, about taking a look at our medicine plants, our food plants, our basketry plants, uh, the plants we use for, for different kinds of uh, caring, um, for netting, um, for, um, for netting and for traps and stuff. So they, and they love it. They just really buy into it. And so we've been doing that for uh, three years now. We also work with the um, UC Santa Cruz Arboretum. There we have a 55-acre Amamutsin garden. And that's where we do a lot of the growing of the plants that we hope to someday trans, uh, transplant and bring back. Well, we're starting to do that already. But to bring them back to our territories when we restore the native plants, we're, we're uh, growing a lot of the plants now um, at, the, at the Arboretum. And so there we have work and learn parties where we invite the friends of the Arboretum in and we'll talk to them about how to, uh, the same kind of thing, about the use of a lot of our plants, how do you care for them, how do you grow them. For example, when we grow plants, we say the plants know where they belong. I mean, we're not going to get this plant saying, oh, wouldn't this kind of plant look beautiful here? That's not what we do. We'll go in out and we'll identify where the plants are and we'll say, that's where the plant wants to be. And such. And so from there, we'll try and grow and expand that. And we call it patches. We try and expand that patch of that plant that wants to be there, that belongs there, and uh, grow it bigger. And that's what our ancestors would do. They would see that they would try and grow the patches so that it provided enough food material, for example, for all wildlife and for themselves. So they would grow the patch as big as they needed it to care to provide the food plant. Um, etc. Um, and then we also talk about things like fire. The use of fire is very important. The use of fire to us is a, was a gift and a tool uh, from the Creator. And we see we talk about the, how to use fire and such. 
Uh, we also work with the, there's a ranch there. It is a nonprofit ranch uh, where they're teaching high school students about sustainable farming. But they have 14,000 kids go through there each year. And so they call us in to talk to the students. So not only are they learning farming from the, you know, the, the contemporary way of farming, but we also teach them about Native American agriculture and uh, food production, et cetera, as well. So we have a lot of, uh, of, um, of uh, programs in regard to education, and it's a really important program. Uh, there's not enough moots in now to really transform Mother Earth, but if we could train others to do it the same way, we know we can make a difference then. As you mentioned, uh, the land divestiture by the power company. So we're dealing with these divestitures for conservation by various companies. And when you look at their history, especially if you're in your own homeland, you can see that they never had a right to the land in the first place. So you're in a process where they are you know, going through this process of divesting the land, and you're questioning whether or not they have the right to divest that land. And you should have to participate in that way to apply to get it back. So that could be a challenge. I uh, just wanted to put those out there. I want to thank you tonight, the audience, for tuning in. Keep your heads up. Body talk.